Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Trying to be a good parent is a road full of bumps and detours. Health concerns and social issues are hard to navigate. Raising healthy kids, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. This season, we've been celebrating 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. And joining us tonight, here in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings, is Dr. Tracy Pirette, who's a pediatrician with Sanford Health in Watertown, South Dakota, and Dr. Sarah Smith. She's family medicine at the Avera Medical Group in Brookings. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. It's going to be a great conversation tonight, yeah. I think. Thank you. So, Tracy, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what drew you to pediatrics? Uh, well, I'm a, a pediatrician and I work up in <laughs> Watertown. I've been doing that for about 15 years and I did go to medical school at USD here in South Dakota. Uh, I did residency out in uh, Milwaukee uh, back in well a while ago and uh, I guess I, I got into pediatrics because I had a great uh, mentor a pediatric mentor Dr. Jerry Blake who was a developmental pediatrician and was working with camping programs at the time and as I went into medical school I uh, did have a lot of I guess uh, input from him and and that really pushed me into pediatrics and uh, since that day, I really enjoyed it and I wouldn't do anything else. Can't ask for more than that. I agree. <laughs> Sarah, how about you? Tell us about yourself and what made you decide family medicine was a good fit. Yeah, well, when I um, finally decided about, you know, going to medical school after college and um, you get a chance to kind of uh, see all the different types of, of medical practice and and get a test test the waters during your training and and I just knew that I wanted to have a, a wide variety and family practice provided that for me um, get to see people at all different stages of their lives um, you get to see you know people when they're sick but then also you get to see people when they're well and and help promote um, uh, health and wellness and uh, I just was was um, interested in 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 seeing patients of all ages and so that really um, brought me to family medicine. And I think we'd all agree that one of the best things about primary <clears throat> care is getting to develop that relationship with people and having that ongoing. I, I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just a good thing. So. Yeah. But we're going to talk about pediatrics tonight, which is a good fit for a pediatrician. Um, so, you know, that is certainly where all that healthy lifetime skills and setting kids up for a healthy life is just such an important thing, and it starts at birth. You know, that's that uh, from the very beginning actually starts even before birth, but most of us don't have a lot of opportunity to influence that before birth. So um, 
A couple of things, you know, when we think about pediatrics and we think about seeing those patients, we all see those babies before they go home from the, from the hospital. Um, one of the things I always like to talk to parents about, I have a whole list of things that I go through with, with parents before they go home from the hospital. What kinds of things are on your list? Um, I think when, as they're discharged from home, basically the biggest thing is we always talk about what to expect just the first few days because they get overwhelmed a lot. There's so much thrown at them, especially with the new parents, that uh, you, you want to just break it down and just focus on, I always say, just worry about eating, peeing, and pooping. And if we can do that, everything will be just fine. And if you can reassure them with that, um, they get to the first visits and you can talk about more things to, to think about. But really it's just eating and getting a good pattern uh, right away after birth. And uh, if they're comfortable with that and things are going well, really everything else does come, come along uh, very nicely. Um, and then as you get into the further visits, you can uh, talk about other things and, and talk about their expectations and what development uh, they should be expecting. But in the beginning, I think the big thing is just to know that they're comfortable with the feeding and the baby's growing and it's healthy. How about you, Sarah? Yeah, you I, have I totally agree. I tell parents you're in survival mode. You're just really trying to get to the next day and you can't do really anything wrong. If you're loving that baby and feeding that baby, um, you know, well, as long as families know that they have close follow-up, you know, I'm going to see you in, in a week and you're going to have a nursing visit here in a couple days, they know that they've got some support. Um, that's really important too. Um, we talk a little bit about safety, you know, making sure that parents are sleeping their babies on their back. Um, many of us grew up with our parents sleeping us on our tummies and we now know that that's not a safe thing to do. Um, so just really reinforcing that to new parents, um, even if grandma says, you know, well this is how we used to sleep you if you don't have a good sleeper. But um, so some safety issues, making sure that they feel comfortable with um, car seats and, you know, giving a bath. and and um, um, some of those kind of safety things that parents might feel anxious about. Um, and then a little bit about, you know, illness, what to look for if your baby's not um, eating right or, or pooping well or might have a little, you know, might have a fever, parents are concerned. Um, just always telling them that it's never wrong to, to bring your baby in for, to be checked, mm -hmm. even, if, even if nothing's wrong, we'll look at that baby and, and help you know what to do. That's a good point, you know, just to really know that I would tell parents, use your gut instinct. If you feel like things aren't right, I'd rather you come in. I, I don't care. I'll see them every day if, you, if, it, if it's what has to happen. But use your gut instinct, and parents are usually pretty good. If, if things don't seem right, there's usually something wrong. Absolutely. And I think that that's just an important thing to reinforce is that it's hard with a newborn. They're different than older children, and the signs of sickness are a lot more subtle in those newborns. So yeah, you can't take a chance. You really. can't take a chance. They don't have good immune systems. They're not very developed. You you just don't want to take any chances. Bring them in. And I just think there's a lot of parental anxiety. There's a lot on social media. You know, families might not. You know, you might not have grandma and grandpa close. Um, or grandma and grandpa might tell you to put them on the tummy. <laughs> right. Right. Or give so them whiskey. Or yeah. give them whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, there's a lot of parental anxiety, and so sometimes just seeing seeing that family and just saying, you know, your baby looks great. Everything's normal. You're doing a good job. Or, or you know what? I'm not sure. Let's have you come back tomorrow, and we'll double check. How, how much the baby's weighing or, or if your breast milk is coming in or, or whatever we need to do. Absolutely. 
Um, we know we've we've mentioned sleep. You you mentioned sleep about uh, making sure the baby's sleeping on their backs, and and that is a change that was not the way it was recommended when any of us were children. Um, so that's an important thing. But there's some other things that have changed about safe sleeping. Tracy, what what do you tell parents about safe sleep environment for your their babies? Well, in, in sleep, you're right. I mean, years ago, it was front, being in their belly was okay, but it's been a long time that we've had that recommendation out for being on your back to sleep, and it's really cut uh, SIDS deaths by a lot. Sudden infant death syndrome. Right. Um, the, I mean, the other thing is there are a number of parents that really like co-sleeping. Co-sleeping with babies is is uh, it's not ideal. It's something sleeping we, in bed with your baby. Correct. Yeah. Sleeping with them. Um, we would all hope that we, if we were sleeping in the bed with our baby, that we would recognize that they're there and wouldn't roll over on them or whatever. But it, that does happen, and so it's not it's not a recommendation to do that and to keep them in the crib without bumpers and. That was something as well that's hard for grandparents to let go of because they look so pretty in there. <laughs> so, so take your picture and then get them out. Um, but having just an empty um, crib with just a tight-fitting sheet on the mattress with no bumpers and pillows, comforters, stuffed animals, nothing. Just a safe sleep environment for the baby on their back. And that's going to be the best thing for kids. We also, you know, I also recommend there, there's some information that if you can have some air circulating in the room, maybe it's just a ceiling fan or just a, some air circulating in the room is okay. Uh, we used to also worry about pacifiers, if it's a bad thing or a good thing, and um, we think that's probably a good thing and helps maybe with SIDS too. With mm -hmm. a sudden infant death syndrome. Death syndrome. Yeah. How about uh, wedges, positioning advices? I mean, you see a lot of those advertised on social media and parents talking about them. What do you think about those, Sarah? I don't, I just really tell families not to use those. I mean, sometimes we'll have, you know, if, if a baby has reflux or some some um, difficulty with sleeping, we'll, we can recommend that that baby be on an incline, you know, so blocking the head of the bed up a little bit as long as that baby's not one that would be mobile around in the bed at night. But um, any wedges or, or um, sleep devices or things that, um, you know, other than swaddling, I just say try to get by without it. Yeah. So we'll pass. Yeah. This phase will pass. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's also those, there's lots of devices, um, these was owlets, things that you put uh, oxygen saturation monitors and things on your baby. And um, again, those aren't necessarily recommended. Those are tough because you'd think every parent should just put one on and, and have a, a monitor on your baby that usually they're going off when they shouldn't and so they just really create a lot of extra anxiety it seems with families and and so the uh, they're starting to get better but it, they're still not something that we would re definitely recommend yeah. now how about sleeping where should baby sleep should baby sleep in your room should baby sleep in its own room what do you think what do you what do you tell well, parents I you know I recommend that um, the if for just for ease of, of feeding that that baby can be in your room with you if you're if you um, 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 are nursing you would nurse and you're free to nurse in bed but then we would have you swaddle that baby um, and put them back in their own little crib or bassinet um, we want parents to be able to respond to, to baby um, 
Um, but there's no, you know, from my practice, I don't have any hard and fast rules. I don't know what well, you I think tell. it's, the, you know, the first couple months, for sure, it's it's not a terrible idea to have them in your room. It's good. I think then you're, you can uh, learn your baby's patterns. You can also hear them well and it takes a lot of the anxiety away for new parents. Um, but as they do get a little older after a couple months or so, it's very reasonable then to have them in their own room, in their, um, in their crib, uh, on their back. And then um, you're also then in the early parts of teaching your baby good sleep habits for uh, independence too. Yeah, absolutely, and those habits are so important. You know, you, I always tell parents, you can't spoil your baby. Not you can't spoil your newborn. But you can think about habits that are gonna carry through, and that middle of the night feeding should be really business-like mm -hmm. so that they don't learn that two o'clock in the morning is private fun time with private daddy or mommy. Right. Yeah, yeah. We, they I should, agree. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's sleep time. Feed them, burp them, change them, yeah. put them back down, and everybody, too, yeah, everybody go back to sleep at that point, yeah. so. I also always tell my families that, hey, you know what, if you wanna sleep with your two-year-old, go for it. You know, you're going to be the one with the black eye and bloody nose, um, and you're probably not going to smother your two-year-olds. Um, and it's okay if your two-year-old has a blanket, but uh, not for the little you, ones. Not for yeah. the little ones, and uh, you don't really want to sleep with your two-year-old because you will end up with black eyes and bloody noses. Well, and then the two-year-old becomes a four-year-old, and then yeah. they're a six-year-old, yeah. and then you're then you've created a bit of then a monster. you've created a problem. Yeah. Now try to change that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those are those are those habits again that you yeah. wanna wanna be careful with. Now, how about feeding? Um, what about vitamin D, for example? What do you what do you tell your breastfeeding parents about? Does the baby need supplements? Yeah, they do. You know, vitamin D. Even, you know, even with the best nutrition, it just seems that there's just not quite enough vitamin D. And I'm gonna be honest, it's probably with all of us. If we checked our vitamin D levels, I bet we're all low. We live in the north. We have uh, most of our, our life we're covered up inside. We don't get the sunlight that we probably need, and we don't want to get sun exposure too much anyway, but we probably are all low in vitamin D, but babies especially do need that. That's even with babies that are breastfed, especially only. Um, yeah, a but dose of vitamin formula D. formula doesn't have, doesn't have enough vitamin D for those newborns who aren't getting the same, the volumes. So yeah, they may need supplement too. And vitamin D is not just um, for calcium, but it's their immune system. There's so many things that do benefit from having good vitamin D levels. And I tell families, if you forget it, it's not a big deal. No. You know, have it there when you see it, use it, try to do it daily. But I, you know, it's it's one of those things that if if you if you've missed a day or something, it's not going to be the end. It's not going to yeah. be the end of the world. So um, it's just just kind of a you know remind them that it's an important supplement. And and again, that's kind of a routine thing. If they can put it, you know, someplace where they'll see it every day and try to get that in, that usually goes pretty well. Any other supplements that a newborn should have, Sarah? Well, I think about the, the shots that kids get at the very beginning of life with vitamin K and, and uh, hepatitis immunization. Those aren't supplements that, that parents give at home, but those are really, really critical, important things that babies get in the hospital. Um, we do occasionally see families that refuse those interventions and, um, and uh, try to be real open and honest with, with, with families about the risks of, of not getting those um, things. Vitamin K helps prevent um, hemorrhaging because babies have uh, some different uh, types of, uh, they're lacking certain things that prevent bleeding and so the vitamin K helps with that. And, and um, the immunizations are just very critical to start at the beginning of life. So um, 
we talk about that definitely either either before the baby's born or for sure once the once the baby's born and they're in the hospital yeah, I agree that vitamin K is something that does you know occasionally we'll have periods of time where that's I don't know a fad or something where people don't want to get that done they think it's bad it's but they don't ever hear about the bad outcomes that can happen if mm -hmm. you don't mm -hmm. get that. That does happen. I've seen that before. Mm -hmm. It's devastating to, to have a, devastating. a baby have a, a brain bleed because of something that very likely mm -hmm. could have been prevented is mm -hmm. horrifying. It's terrible. Yeah. And but so I most often I do convince parents to do it. I said it's definitely worth doing. And um, so mm -hmm. vitamin K for sure. Iron is another thing that especially yeah. breast breastfeeding moms, um, iron and vitamin D don't get into breast milk very well, so iron is another thing that baby will eventually need some supplement for. Um, I don't know, you you and I, are, well, we're all kind of of the same age, so yeah, yeah. Uh, when we started, we were all, oh, well, you'll start your baby on iron-enriched cereal at four months, and uh, but we're not doing that so much anymore. So what do you tell parents about iron? Well, and you know, cereal can have some in that, and you know, we're introducing solids after, certainly after four months, um, but somewhere around the five to six month mark is is reasonable. Um, the you know, a lot of babies coming out of the NICU and the, the NICU uh, do have a suggestion just to start iron because they often have lots of blood tests done and they get a lot of blood taken out. And so they are usually iron deficient just because of all the blood tests that were done. So they're, they're usually on iron supplements, uh, multivitamin with iron from, from birth, and usually that'll go till at least six to nine months. You know, once they do get it in their foods, um, iron-containing foods, uh, then they're usually gonna do okay. But you know, solely breastfed uh, kids especially do, do benefit from an iron supplement. We talked a little bit about, you know, seeing those babies in close follow-up, you know, helping the parents get through that crisis mode and, and starting to know what to expect. Why are those well-child checks so important, Sarah? Um, I think it, it, it is a great way to get to know the family, to help them um, understand what to expect with their child as they grow and develop, um, giving them some tips and tricks, um, you know, helping them you know, understand what's normal and maybe what's not normal, and and just a lot of a lot of teaching. So it's not just you know weigh the baby and do an exam. You're I would say most of the visit is counseling the families about um, you know um, things that they can be doing to help with their baby's cognition and what to do to make sure that their children have healthy teeth. Um, so we do lots and lots of teaching, um, and so and during that, you create a relationship with that family so that they um, there's a trust that there that forms, and and that's really really important. Even when those kids are teenagers or heading off to college, <laughs> or you know you're just setting the stage for for all those different changes in life, and and um, so it's not just a not just a physical, it's not just a checkup of the body, it's really comprehensive. I, so. I completely agree. It's it's very interesting the dynamic that you can, you you learn the family. That continuity of care is so it's so valuable. Um, if you have to, as a new provider, see a patient for the first time, uh, you, you don't have all that history on them. But if you've seen them since they were born, you know that family. You've seen that kid. You know how they maybe act. Um, things that don't seem right. You, you you pick up on that. I think so much easier with that with those well visits. You come in. I have. Parents to say, oh, this was, 
why do we do this? He's fine. I'm like, that's good. This is what we want. That's our goal is that we find everything's going well. We're growing good. Uh, I'll find sometimes kids will come in and they're nine years old and they haven't been seen since they're 18 months. And they're really small, but I don't, is that them? Uh, I'm not sure. I can't look back and look at their history. I can't see their growth pattern. So is there a medical problem or is this just this kid? Is it normal? And so if you don't come to those visits, then you miss out on all those plot points, all those value, the values that we can pick up on in, in the, the physical things that we can see. Um, that you, would, you, won't, you won't get that if you don't come to those visits. And plus we do the, the uh, vaccines when they're, when they're due. Um, there's so much that, do, that we do get out of those. And even if it's we find nothing, that's awesome. That's what we want. But we still put some plot points on there to show what their pattern of growth is. And it's just invaluable. Development, you know, monitoring that child's development. Is that child meeting their milestones? Are they seeing, um, are they learning to walk when they're supposed to walk? Are they learning to talk? Are they learning to count? Um, and there's been some some noise in the news lately about some changes in that uh, assessment. Tracy, what what do you know about that? Well, you know that it is. It's a, it's kind of a change, sort of in the in the guidelines of of um, the development and in the, it's I would say it's necessarily a big change but it's just kind of when you should be alerted so I, I'm gonna give an example one, one example would be when babies are six months old and they've been uh, coming in for a decade now or it, that they're six months old we we talk about and ask about are they sitting yet uh, are they sitting by themselves um, because half of kids are, and half of kids were still working on that. And that's okay. Um, the newer guideline basically pushes that question off until they're nine months. And so they'll say, are they sitting yet? And if they are not sitting at nine months, then maybe there's an issue that should be brought up now. Uh, whereas previous, we would be asking about that at six months of age and saying, well, get ready for that. So I don't know, I think the guideline is trying to simplify development to bring the questions up when most kids should be doing it. So most kids should be sitting at nine months. And if they're not, then maybe that's something to really, really look at. Um, whereas before, we were talking about th those things a little bit earlier. So it's not that the, the guidelines haven't it, really it changed. Really doesn't seem that when way. we expect to see those things hasn't changed. No. It's just when we're looking for right. them that have changed. Instead of right. saying, "Oh, half the kids are doing it right. by now," we're looking at it where we expect the majority of kids Correct. to be doing it. When are we so, going to put the check mark? Yep. Yeah. When are, when like are we going to say yeah. this? This might be an issue that we need so to look it, into. It doesn't mean that kids are developing slower or faster than they used to. It really is the same information, it's just when probably to be alerted about it. So it's a, and Sarah, what? let's say you do have a child that maybe isn't talking or isn't rolling or isn't doing something when they should, what might you do? 
What, what, why does it matter? Why do we, why do right. we bother to Well, look? it matters because we know that kids that are maybe a little behind or there might be a few little red flags going on um, really benefit from early intervention. Um, so about, you know, um, setting them up to see a birth to three evaluator. I mean, that's a free service that we, it's a refer, you know, we refer to um, that service. It might be for speech therapy or for uh, physical therapy if we see that you know okay their language is is developing fine but their you know their gross motor movements are not where they should be um, let's just check into that and just make sure that we can maybe there's some things that we can do to pull them along and get them up to where their peers are um, and so that's um, you know that's not something that I'm trained in you know that I do in the office you know somebody might say well can't you help us with this uh, but I would say there's other people that are that are better trained um, like physical therapy therapists or speech therapists and they they share their skills with families they do a lot of teaching um, they would evaluate that child and make some recommendations about um, and then they communicate with me they let me know if there's anything that needs to be um, evaluated further and so that's a great a great tool for us and what what might a family expect from birth to three so birth to three will actually contact them directly and then they'll set up um, a, a conversation and often a, a meeting actually to evaluate the the kiddos and it is it's invaluable to have that um, because as, as she said it's a it's a free service it's a state program and so we we are having a group of people trained in development and so it's usually physical therapists or occupational therapists or speech therapists or all of the above or all of the above depending on what my concerns were and so I'll actually I just email the birth to three coordinator with the person and I talk to the birth to three coordinator about this uh, baby or toddler and they get a hold of them and then they set up a time to meet with them and, and make that evaluation and from there they can then coordinate speech therapy or occupational therapy or physical therapy or all of them to catch try to catch that baby up uh, see if there's other things uh, going on and those professionals will usually come to the child so I know that's often a, a barrier for a lot of parents yep. is you know I'm working how how am I supposed to do this how am I supposed to take my mm -hmm. child to all these visits and birth to three is a great program because they, and they, they do really reach out some to that. Don't want that. Some parents yep. don't want that. That's and true. There, some there are other ways too. There's 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 this, like they'll meet in a school or something uh, as well. So they can either meet at your home or often meet at yep. school as well. And sometimes do do sessions at daycare. You know yes. they'll attend. Yep. You know wherever the child is going to daycare, the therapist Absolutely. will come and do a little session there. Yeah, it's great. So there's a lot of flexibility in how they can provide those those really valuable services. Yep. So. Another important step in pediatric health is making sure that children are up to date on their vaccines. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with a Brookings resident about his struggles with polio after he could not receive the vaccine as a child. Mark Sternhagen was born in 1956 and grew up in Scotland, South Dakota. The Salk polio vaccine came out in April of 1955 but when it was his turn to get it, he was running a fever. In that case, the protocol was not to vaccinate. That next summer during polio season on August 7th, I got polio. No one else around me did. All of those that had been vaccinated did not. Just me, the one who wasn't. I know for a fact, had I been vaccinated, 
I would not have gotten polio. And to me, that says everything that I need to know about the importance of vaccines. He spent most of his first two years in a hospital polio ward in Omaha. So I have full sensation throughout my body. Now, when I first had polio, and it's kind of a strange thing because what it does is it fires all the neurons. So your muscles will work against themselves. So it's kind of, you know, it, it very extremely painful. I don't recall any of that because I was 18 months old. The disease progressively got worse. By the time it really got to its full force, I could move my head a little bit and my right wrist enough to wave bye-bye to my mom. That was all I could move. It has continued to impact his life to this day. He has been in a wheelchair full-time for the last five years and part-time for the last 15 years. He has always had a leg brace and crutches. It continues to get a little more debilitating every day. I'm, I'm glad that it's not worse than it was the day before or a year before or whatever. I'm kind of at a point now where um, I don't want anything to get any worse because I, I'm able to take care of myself. I'm able to do whatever I need to do. Um, but, you know, one false move and maybe I won't be able to. Dr. Joe Sejalon, vice president and medical officer of Sanford Children's Hospital, explained why pediatric vaccines are vitally important. We really vaccinate for two reasons. We, we vaccinate for the individual to keep them healthy and to try to keep them from preventable diseases that can cause them to be significantly ill. Now, take chickenpox. And then the second reason why we vaccinate is to take, take care of our population in general and to reduce diseases in the population that can cause significantly harm. And so that has been quite effective in doing that throughout history. So Tracy, um, do we still see polio? Do we still need that polio vaccine? Uh, we do need it, you know, and, and I think we probably all could, thankfully not a lot, but we could all look in our lives and see and know somebody that has polio, and usually they're the older, for sure. But it is, it is something that we still have to do and worry about, and, you know, polio isn't the only one, but it's, it's something that we do have to vaccinate for to keep it away. It's something that we forget. We forget about these illnesses because they seem gone. They seem like they're, they're not around very often. Um, and so we forget. We forget and say, I don't need that because I've not seen that ever before. I don't see that anymore. So parents see that. And, and when you forget, then they, they want to forego that vaccine. Oh, we don't need that one. We don't need that one. I don't see that anymore. But when we have people doing that, that's what makes then polio come back. And then we'll have to start that all over again. Anything to add there, Sarah? Yeah, I think um, we just have to remember that we are living in a country where we have access to vaccines and we are so uh, blessed uh, to be in a, in a place. There are other countries that people would just be thrilled to have those um, vaccines um, available to them and uh, we know that they work. We know that um, 
that they're safe and um, that's one of the main things that I talk to families about and, mm -hmm. and parents about is the importance of vaccines so um, and again you're not just doing it for your own child you know you um, uh, you do it for those around you too so I really like what what he said about um, you know it's a it's a community it's a it's a way that we live in community and help serve people around us and I think it's really important to remember that those diseases that we don't think about, pertussis, polio, measles, they're all just a plane ride away. Yeah, and absolutely. It, or even a car ride away. And, and some not even. I mean, when yeah. we look at uh, whooping cough, pertussis is always around. Yep, pertussis always is around. always around. And and I've seen many babies with, with whooping cough, and it's devastating. It's horrible to watch a baby cough themselves to death. Literally. Literally, and and you you know you, that that can be prevented, and that's that's always around. Um, meningitis, you know, the Haemophilus vaccine, mm -hmm. something. I thankfully I don't have to do spinal taps on babies like very early in my practice. I don't have to because we don't have meningitis because of that vaccine. It's not magic. It's because of the vaccine, mm -hmm. and that's where yeah, the we Hib have and to. the Prevnar came out. Right. Right. not within my career. Um, exactly. It has changed dramatically how many children there are in the neonatal intensive care unit with meningitis. It used to be m several children at any given time and now it's uh, just a few a year. Thankfully, exactly. Yeah, thankfully, absolutely. So those vaccines are really important. Absolutely so, they are. Yeah. So. Other things that will often come up during well-child checks, here's one of my favorites, temper tantrums. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, what do you tell parents about temper tantrums? Oh, wow, those kids, they want, they are the, they are the center of the universe, oh, right? Yes. So they think that they are gonna, you know, they, in their mind, they rule the world and they want you to jump and give them whatever they want. So um, it is just a real opportunity to, to help your child, um, you know, manage their anger and help them understand, um, you know, emotions and have those conversations, but also just be really firm with them and, and have, um, you know, kids that have um, rules and limits um, are probably happier kids. And so, um, you know, if, if it's, if, if it's um, something that you can ignore, um, a toddler that's having a tantrum, I just tell parents, just ignore. If you don't give them that feedback that they want, um, then oftentimes that will just be the end of it. So um, I think you can give some choices, but I think endless choices can, can be a problem too. Um, so yeah, if you have questions about tantrums, I would say talk to your, talk to your doctor and they will, they'll give you some tips and tricks about that, so. Temper tantrums, yes. <laughs> You know, kids, their whole goal in life is to get what they want uh, at that Mine age. Mine too. Yeah. <laughs> they, and if, if temper tantrums work, why won't I? I'll do it. And that's why if, if you respond to it and give into it, that's why they do it more. It's because it works. Why wouldn't they? So don't let it work. I'm glad that kids do have temper tantrums. Check it off. Say, yep, development's normal. Mm -hmm. But yeah, don't let that work. And, um, you know, put it down, walk away. And if you can let the kids know that's not going to work they will move on to other ways and it's frustrating kids are are they're not able to express themselves with words and talk and so you'll find it a lot more when they're not talking yet but once they get to be of talking age then they're much less common unless you're letting them work mm -hmm. 
I always remind parents that discipline is not necessarily punishment. Discipline is guidance. So give that child something that does work. Catch them when they're doing what you want them to do and reward that with your time and attention. Kids want your time and attention and they'll do whatever it takes mm -hmm. to get it. And if that's throwing themselves on the floor in the middle of church and having a screaming fit, they will do that. And if it's putting their toys away, they will do that. Yeah, and I always try to give that you know the the frazzled mom at the at the grocery store who's telling her child no you can't have a candy bar. I give her a little thumbs up. Good job, you're doing it. You know <laughs> you'll right. you'll get through, and 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 that child will probably be a happier, more well-adjusted child than the kid who gets everything that they yes. want. So yeah. so I think that's a good message for all of us. You know when you see those parents in the grocery store mm -hmm. with their child having a temper tantrum give them that thumbs up and and mm -hmm. make them feel that they're not alone <laughs> so, yeah, because that is yeah, very very yeah. isolating it's, yeah they don't always happen at home right uh, right right exactly so. the doctor gave me a thumbs up you'll get through it you can do this <laughs> this is hard but it you can do hard. it yeah so. um, and you mentioned language and I often find that that's a big factor for kids when they don't have any way to express what they want and and how they're feeling. Um, what do you tell parents about language development? Well, I think too, you know, I start really early on just to start talking to your baby, reading, pointing, naming things, uh, patting pictures, just really start to help build their vocabulary. They're learning words very early on. They don't say them, but they're learning lots of words and they're, that's why you'll find long before they talk, you can go say, hey, go grab that book or pick up that shoe, and they do it because they know what you're talking about. They just don't say it. So working on speech and language very early is uh, super helpful for them. And that, that language development, uh, by the time they're 18 months, they have some words, but really right before two, they explode with words, lots and lots of words coming out. And so expect that, but don't expect a lot of language necessarily early on in the after a year of age, but they are learning them, so keep doing it. Well, I'm frustrated. I keep teaching them and they don't learn anything. They are learning it. Just give them some time and uh, you'll know they're learning it because they can respond when you're talking to them and they just don't say them themselves. I like to, to suggest sign language to families. I think that often Especially, I, I, my children both had some language, uh, expressive language issues, and sign language was just miraculous in our family. Even just a few words, just yep. please and thank you and more, more. you know. Yeah, I think those <laughs> it just helps, helps kids feel like they can communicate with you a little bit. So yeah. there, there is a, there, I've had some speech therapists, and they don't want you to necessarily teach a lot of that just because then they will start relying on if you have a kid that does struggle with expressive language. Too much of that sometimes then they learn and they don't necessarily want to speak and they'll just continue to speak to do the language, uh, sign language. But I think that, that depends on me learning that much sign language. <laughs> yeah, and that's probably just a small amount. That's all I can do anyway. <laughs> so, but, but I think what you said, that'd be awesome. That's perfect just to yeah. get rid of that frustration. Yeah, it's very helpful. Sure. How about bilingual families? Sarah, what do you what do you tell your families? You know, we see that a little bit here in South Dakota where, you, you know, especially in Brookings with the international community where there's another language available at home. Yeah, I tell families, you know, please 
speak both languages at home or if you you know if the child is going to school they're getting lots and lots of, of uh, English language um, speak your speak your native tongue and home um, that is a gift that you can give your children to, to, to have that um, extra language and um, uh, when kids are learning two languages, when they're in a home where there's English and Spanish, say, um, they might not be at the same number of words uh, that just a single uh, language speaker would have um, at, at, at any given time, but they catch up fast. They catch up fast. So I tell parents, it's, you know, it's fantastic. You should be, speak both with your children. Thank God bless that. Kids are smart. Kids are super smart. They absorb that so fast. They learn words so much better than I think adults would. And that the Spanish, is, you know, I have a lot of Spanish-speaking uh, families, and you know, that's their expertise at home. They speak that. That's their native language. They're the best teachers for speaking Spanish at home. They'll get a lot of that, like you said, English at school and with their friends. But if you can learn a second language, you're going to be a step up uh, for sure. I'd say I definitely would not discourage two languages. Absolutely. I totally agree. What an incredible gift to be a uh, native speaker of two languages. Yeah, absolutely. Just an incredible gift. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about, we've talked a lot about what goes right and how to kind of help guide that along. How about when things go wrong? Um, probably one of the most common things I see is concerns about ADHD. What makes you start thinking about ADHD, Tracy? Well, usually the teachers will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that um, you know ADHD is a spectrum. I always say uh, you can look at probably any of us and show some features of that. I know I have features of ADHD, but the issue is, is it causing problems? Is it causing problems with your ability to be successful? And if you're in school and you're 25 students in a class and your ADHD symptoms, your inability to focus or distractibility or hyperactivity, if those things are causing you to be unsuccessful, you know, that's a time where maybe there'd be value to have, have someone talk about that and look at that a little more closely. Uh, if you have a hyper kid, but they're doing wonderfully and they're not distracting all the other kids necessarily, they're just a hyper kid or inattentive, but they still do well, okay. Um, I don't think then it would be a disorder. I think that that's just one that, that'd be like me, you know, it's okay. <laughs> uh, but if it is causing problems, um, their grades aren't good, they're not able to adapt uh, in the scholastic setting, their peers struggle to make friends with them, um, then I think it's worth looking into. So is the most important thing is that hyperactivity, that bouncing in their chair and squirming around and blurting out, is that the most important thing for ADHD? I, yeah, I mean, I would say more of the inattention is probably the bigger issue, so. Distraction. Um, yeah, just not being able to focus, um, so. Yeah, you have to remind families, I mean, and we only see kids in the office for such a short time, so parents are gonna come in with concerns or they're gonna bring an email from the teacher and say this is what's going on, and we need that information to help families. Um, and I remind them, you know, what's normal, you know, you know, uh, it's it's not normal for a child to sit still, you know, <laughs> it's not normal for that, you know, they need to get outside, they need to run and play. They also need to get adequate sleep because a lot of times sleep deprivation has exactly the same symptoms, you know, when we're staying up too late at night. And 
and or those, snoring, sleep <clears throat> right? Yeah, like, you know, yeah. kids. The only way they can stay awake is to be moving. You know, so we try to do a little bit of troubleshooting there. But I think that kind of that quiet kid that's really distractible, that maybe isn't hyperactive, they're the ones that might get missed. Mm -hmm. And so um, we really try to, um, we start to see that more in, you know, in that middle um, elementary age and start to see that, uh, that teachers can identify some of those things. But uh, yeah, I think that we try to treat it from multiple angles. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a medication, maybe it's a, uh, some special attention at school, maybe there's some tutoring that can happen, um, maybe there's some changes that need to happen at home with schedules. Um, so there's no one size fits all, you know, we don't just slap a medication on any kid that, you know, can't sit still or is not getting a good grade in a class. Um, it does it does take some time to go through all of that. Yeah, really, the sleep part is, is really important. You know, I think I've, I found so many kids that they just have s poor sleep. They're chronically sleep deprived. And then of course you're inattentive mm -hmm. because they're <laughs> basically sleeping in the school. And so that is huge. Kids sleep, uh, you know, with technology and that's a whole nother topic. But uh, technology has caused big problems with sleep and then kids have um, sleep deprivation and then they're misdiagnosed as ADHD. Uh, whereas really they just need to have good sleep. Sleep is really important. and. It's definitely a casualty of our culture. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. screens. You mentioned those screens. Mm, what yes. do you tell families about screens, especially now when it they seem to start very early with doing everything at school on their on their computer. Sarah, what's? Yeah. I mean, I tell families there's no need for a screen before age two. Um, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong if that's changed lately, but I, I no. just I tell families there's really no need for any TV or any iPad or any kind of screen. Um, you know, we all break down and maybe uh, you know need that little 15-minute babysitter, but to be on a screen for a long time at that age is just not helpful for the brain. The brain just is not going to develop properly, and they're not going to. Um, use their imagination and their creativity and and so before two I say no screens um, and uh, just try to stress that to families so after that there's some you know we talk about setting limits and and probably no more than one to two hours for older kids so I don't know what you advise your families yeah. and well like you said un under two there is no reason to have screens there's no benefit um, and and as they get older um, they get so much screen time at school, basically their entire day is on the screen. Um, but then they want fun time, you know, mm -hmm. on their screens, mm -hmm. and that's TV, phones, computers, iPads, all that. And we do one to two hours, uh, really, max. Um, but we know kids are getting so much more than that. They're, you know, this is a generation of hyper-stimulation, mm -hmm. and it's no good. Um, Boredom is good. I always <laughs> tell parents, boredom fosters creativity. Yep. If you can get your kids bored, God bless you. I often ask families, you know, can they stack blocks? People don't have blocks at home anymore. No. You know, kids don't stack blocks. <laughs> and play with and blocks. so, you know, you just really remind them, you know, it's important to learn the skill of independent play. Independent play is a great skill. Um, it's good for their brain. It's good for their body. It's it's good for their social 
um, development and so when you give them a screen or a tablet you really are taking that away you know now that's going to be followed by a tantrum right yeah. we just talked about the tantrums <laughs> but you have to you have to understand that you know you're this is and and sometimes I think families do great when they say we're done with the screens we're going to put them away for two weeks they'll find that the whole house is calmer that everyone's that better mom and dad are better yep. and um, you know kind of um, it's a, sort of a reawakening about you know we're gonna go for a walk together we're gonna eat dinner without the TV on and and um, and so I think when when families come in and they're just completely exasperated sometimes I say you just need to Screen cut it diet. off yes <laughs> 30 yeah. second take-home message uh, well especially on screen time I'd say that is super important I would say have a no screen or no technology summer turn it all off turn your internet off make the kids bored and then let them have fun doing the stuff that we used to do um, they're gonna get all the technology they need so uh, have a have a great summer with uh, no technology 30 second take-home message I love taking care of kids it's great fun um, uh, we love to see families. Um, we try to support families in any way that we can for health and development and wellness. And if you have questions, try to find that provider for you that, that you can connect with and answer questions for you. And, and we are here to help. So That's right. That's a great take-home message. <laughs> we'll be back after this. you feel, but in my opinion, parenting is hard. Someone must have forgotten to hand me the instruction manual when my children came home. I have yet to meet a parent who wouldn't appreciate one. New parents can count on getting lots of advice from well-meaning friends and relatives and sometimes even perfect strangers. Some of that advice is welcome and useful, some not so much and sometimes that advice is downright dangerous. Many grandparents raised their own children at a time when doctors thought it was best to put babies on their stomachs to sleep. Research in the 90s showed that this sleeping position significantly increased the risk of sudden infant death syndrome, and all those cute stuffed animals and fluffy blankets increased the risk of suffocation. Many great-grandparents started their newborns on solid food soon after birth. Now we understand more about infant nutrition and recommend waiting until six months for most babies. This helps ensure the baby is developmentally ready to swallow solids and reduces the risk of some health problems that can persist well into adulthood. My own generation of parents was told to avoid exposure to common allergens like nuts and fish in the hopes of reducing the risk of food allergies. More recent research actually indicates the opposite. Early introduction to these foods reduces that risk. Of course, parents still need to be mindful of choking hazards. 
try thin, smooth peanut butter, not whole peanuts. We still recommend avoiding honey because of the risk of botulism and liquid milk because it is more difficult to digest. Besides, formula and breast milk provide more complete nutrition. Parents today often swear by sleep nests or wedges. These are cushions meant to prop babies in a particular position. Although these devices are popular, they're dangerous and increase the risk of suffocation. Walkers are perpetually popular too, but they are associated with injuries and have not been shown to help babies learn to walk. In fact, motor skills may be delayed if baby uses a walker. So how can families sort out all this advice? Look for trustworthy sources of information, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics online resource, healthychildren.org, or the American Academy of Family Physicians educational website, familydoctor.org. Best of all, take advantage of regular well-child visits with your primary care provider. Your doctor desires a strong relationship and will work with you to help your child grow up safe and healthy. Thank you, Tracy and Sarah, for volunteering your time to help us learn more about raising healthy kids. You brought some excellent experience and knowledge to the discussion. If you would like to hear and see more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc on Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. I grew up on a farm near Wessington Springs, South Dakota. All my life, I've been an advocate for rural communities. One of the major challenges we face is providing reliable and easy access to primary health care. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, my wife Kathy and I came back to Wessington Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. Just like you, we love our small town. I serve on the Healing Words Foundation Board. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of the Prairie Dock. Rick and Joni Holmes started this mission of providing objective, evidence-based healthcare information free of charge to everyone, especially to people in rural areas who may have limited access to healthcare professionals. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons. That's the Prairie Doc, and it's up to us to help to continue that legacy. Please give to the Healing Words Foundation. Go to prairiedoc.org and make your donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. 
Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau, District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.